you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the folks walking down the aisles will give you one. Just raise your hand. Genesis chapter 3. Now I had, uh, had an enormously long introduction in the previous service. And the reason why is we have been going through the book of Isaiah. We finished Isaiah 53 uh, last week, it was the last sermon I did. I think I did four or five messages on Isaiah 53. And um, somebody said Wednesday night's message was really, um, it touched them. And no less than 10 people said you should preach this on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do what I did Wednesday because I think it really pertains to this building. And I think it's a word God gave me. But what's interesting is I wasn't going to teach out of Isaiah 54. Um, I am going to teach out of Isaiah 55, uh, but when I got up this morning, I, I picked this up and I read it, and I read it to my wife, and she lit up, and, and, and she said, come here, I want to show you something. She takes her one-year Bible that she's been reading through faithfully for years, and she re- recounted when we had been um, getting ready to move to the Lavery Court uh, building, we were still at Skyline, and uh, and we had met in a conference room at the Residence Inn uh, in Westlake. We had, we had taken the, the, the leadership of the church, and we were just trying to kind of dream. And someone gave a word, a prophetic word. And, and I, I am not one to kind of hold to prophetic words. It's just not my bend. I don't dismiss them. It's just not how I work. And yet, for others, it's very important. And this word was sincere And it was out of Isaiah 54, and Michelle points to it, and she said, and then the very first day in the building, we're going to the prophetic word that was given when we came here. I'm like, yeah, great, and I began to read it. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. And the idea is, he says, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations. And God gave us, he expanded, and he's blessed us. And I read that, and I thought, you know what, Lord? I should listen to my wife more often. (laughs) It's pretty remarkable how God has blessed us. And the message this morning is going to take us through a little bit of that. You see, um, on Wednesday night, I had shared with the congregation this idea of passing the baton. And I know you think, what is passing the baton? Uh, I'm 54 years old. And this this is, for all intents and purposes, in my mindset... I'm not, I'm not doing a heavy lift like this again. We're not moving. I've done it uh, twice before. This is number three. I'm not doing it again. Um, and not to say that I, I'm, I lack vision. The idea is God put us here for a very specific reason, and I'm blessed by it. And as I started to recount to the congregation kind of the way in this faith journey that God's taken us, Michelle and I in 2001 were in um, San Jose, California, and I was the assistant pastor under Don McClure, and I was invited to come in candidate for a position in Thousand Oaks where I didn't know where Thousand Oaks was. I had no idea. I was born and raised in Coronado. I ended up in San Jose, and I didn't know what was in between. And I thought Thousand Oaks was L.A., and I didn't want anything to do with L.A. So um, uh, we're invited to come in candidate, and I told him, I said, I, I really, I got to get Don's permission, who was the pastor, and, and I waited for Don to get back. I said, Don, they're asking me to candidate. Uh, I, I don't know much about it. I, I know that the, the couple that invited me, you know, they were attending here and, and they, they're looking for a pastor. He says, well, you can't turn down anything that hasn't been offered to you. So I said, okay. So I, I decided, Michelle and I decided to take the two girls and our newest boy and drive down here uh, to, to uh, candidate. I was going to preach and let them see if they liked me. And as we were driving down the 101, 
it was pouring rain. It was in February of 2001, absolutely pouring rain. I've said it before, it was like a gnome was on the hood of our car with a garden hose, just and the windshield wipers were completely worthless. And it's stormy and crazy and wet and slippery, and we get here, and it's raining the whole time, and we go into this church, we find it, there's no parking, I think there's 22 parking spots in the entire church, it was on a busy street, and it was this old kind of rundown A-frame church building, and we go in, and I kid you not, I'm going to be candid, I'm going to be very, very honest about this, it really smelled like a mortuary to me, and it looked like a mortuary, the colors, the pews, it was just, it, it was creepy, but the people were precious. And they were alive, which is good. <laughs> and I, I was preaching. I, the message was out of the third epistle to John. I was midway through it. As you know, the epistle, third epistle is real tiny. And I was midway through it. And I just sensed the Lord saying, this is a place. And Michelle said the same thing. And when we were driving home, and it was still pouring rain, rained the whole weekend. We're driving home, and it's late, late, and we're both tired. We both knew God had called us. We get to San Jose. Don says, so, you know, how's it going? I said, I, I, I'm I'm going. He, they offered you a job. I said, no, but God kind of confirmed our hearts that we're going. He goes, all right. Well, sure enough, they canceled, the, I think, the rest of the candidates. They gave us the call, and we came down here. Now, when we returned for my first Sunday, it was April 1st, 2001, April Fool's Day. When we returned, what was interesting about the area is that the rains had, had subsided, and the hills were a verdant green. And, and we're going to see this from this location. I don't know if you came in, but you saw the mountain behind us. In time, you're going to see that as just spectacular green. And the whole ring around it was stunningly green. It was beautiful. It was one of those spring days. It just captures your heart. Wildflowers. It was, and, and I looked at it. I, I was born and raised in Coronado. I'm looking at this place going, this is one of the most prettiest places I've ever seen. And I was captivated by it. And I saw these maj- majestic oak trees. And, and all of a sudden, it was like, I'm home. I'm home. And, and we survived that little building, and we got to three services, and it, it was crazy, and the bathrooms were worse than they were at Lavery. It was crazy, and it would overflow, which was really exciting. And, um, and so we decided to leave, we decided to split the church willingly, where we leave the pastor, Pastor Manuel takes the church, and then anyone who wants to go will come, and we joined with uh, the vineyard at the Lavery Court location. It was about a 60-40 split, I don't know what it was. But I remember that Sunday, Michelle and I showed up in 2007, waiting, you know, Manuel's opened his church, he's still at the, at the Skyline location, Michelle and I are at the Lavery Court location, and you, you folks, you did it again this morning, not you, but the early service. We're at the 9 o'clock service, and, and we're very excited, and it's 9 o'clock, and nobody's there. And I look at Michelle, and I said, I, I think we just, I think I just worked myself out of a job. And, and I was getting ready to put my, you know, resume in at Target. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, 9.05, someone's like, is this where we're going? You know, they wandered in and, 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 and everything seemed to work. Today was the same thing. Nine o'clock, I'm like, well, I've got the big building. we got all the chairs, 100 more set. And 9.05, hey, is this where we're supposed to be? And he did it again. And by the way, the first service was just as full as second service. So God is doing a neat work. we got 100 extra chairs in here. I'm telling you, it's a long introduction, but it'll make sense. So we get here, and I want to tell you how this works. Here we are at, at, uh, at the Lavery Court location. God's blessing that building. We're having a delightful time. No intention of owning property. I've never wanted to own property. It's just not the way I operate. I'm not saying that any pastor that has a church that owns property is bad. It's just not the way I operate. And it's, it's my, own, my own issue. It's my own bend. I always feel like it makes an elder board weird. And, you know, because when money's involved, people just get weird. 
so where are we going to go? How are we going to get into a bigger building? And, and um, uh, David and Cindy Lane um, had, had opened up amazing opportunities for me. One in particular was I got to be a teaching pastor on trips to Israel. And so they would invite these key folks, and one was Governor Rick Perry, and they, they've invited the Lieutenant Governor's Association and the RNC. It's amazing. So they invited me to be the, one of the teaching pastors at the sites, the Christian sites, while Rick Perry, who was thinking of running for president at the time, was kind of going to kind of gather folks around him for this presidential run. And uh, I'm excited, and I get to go to Israel and teach at the sites. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of like I'm important. And it was an expensive trip, I, one I couldn't afford, but because I was teaching, it was, it was part of the, the, the process. And on the buses were a lot of big Texas folks. I didn't know who was who. And we're at Masada. If you've ever been to Masada uh, in Israel, it's, it's the, Masada is to Israel what the Alamo is to Texas. It was the last piece of ground the Israelites held before the Romans took over, and, and they, they've, they've memorialized it. But there's nothing biblically significant about Masada. So I don't have to teach there. And I've already heard the story and it's kind of hot. And you're in the you know, Dead Sea and it's an oven. And I'm going to go down uh, to the McDonald's that was in the food court. Um, because I know that they have the secret password where you can get a cheeseburger. Because <laughs> in Israel, Israel, they have kosher meals where you can't put meat and cheese together. And I was craving one. You, if you go, you'll know what I'm saying. After about three four, five days, you kill somebody for cheeseburger. So I, I was going down, and as I'm, I'm heading that way, one of the folks on the trip says, hey, where are you going? Now, I could tell they were Texan. Don't ask me how. I just figured it out. And, and I said, I'm, I, I, I'm going to go get a cheeseburger. They have cheeseburgers here? I go, yeah. He goes, is there anything Christian up there? I go, well, not really. Well, I'm coming with you. So we get in the line, and as we're in the line, um, I say the secret word, get the cheeseburgers. And by the way, I shared this and somebody gave it away. They shut down the McDonald's at Masada. Thanks a lot. Uh, It'll be all right. (laughs) So we're in the line. We go to pay. And I I pull out my wallet and I pay. And and I buy the the burger. And he he says, why are you paying for me? I said, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) You feel sorry for me? Because he had his wife and his family and their married kids had their spouses and I was thinking this guy's getting a cashectomy and I, I buy him food and we sit down and we talk and I, I get to know him I'm invited to go out and speak at these uh, West Texas schools enjoy it and and I come to realize through David and Cindy how significant they were in the American Renewal Project early on and some of the things they did and and this guy is he's rich I didn't realize that until after I bought him a meal I w- would have saved my money just kidding. But here's what's interesting. We became good friends. And um, when David and Cindy Lane had put together the Reagan Thatcher Pope John Paul tour, uh, where we went to Auschwitz and the, the concentration camps ended up at the Churchill War Rooms, Blenheim Palace, and then the birthplace of Churchill. And these pastors were being inspired about this concept. Then we came back to, um, to the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, and Governor Huckabee was there. And this couple uh, was on that trip. And they decided to come to church that Sunday at our church over in Lavery Court. And they show up, and he, he said, uh, I go, hey, Dan. He goes, I could hardly find your church. <laughs> and 
If you have a, a conversation with somebody from West Texas, it takes an hour to get 12 words out of their mouth. I had to look it up on uh, Google. You need to be on the uh, freeway. I won't bore you. I, I do remember one time I was calling him, and, and I, I, he asked me a question. I gave him the answer, and it's silent. And I hear his cockatiel in the back. I go, I hear your bird, Dan. I'm going to kill that thing. Later, he says, have you found a place on the freeway? I said, no, I wasn't looking. We don't have any money to buy a church. We're not interested. He said, I'm buying. I go, well, that's a big story difference right there. So, <laughs> so we had some places. We'd actually put in an offer at the Nazarene Church on Borchard, fell through. We looked at a bunch of freeway accessible. And just on a whim, I'd known this had been in escrow or had been open for sale. And another church had put in an offer. I knew that it had fallen out of escrow. And I told them both, I said, it's not on the freeway. As a matter of fact, it's probably as hard to find as the Lavery Court location, but it's a beautiful building, and you got to see it. And every time I see it, I think it should be a church. And so we came up here. They saw it. They fell in love with it. We put an offer in. God blessed it. And you are now sitting in a church for the sole purpose that somebody got bought a Big Mac in Masada. And so here we are. That's how it works. (laughs) Now, the reality is, We've been blessed. We've been blessed. Because there's a lot of people far more deserving, I imagine, and the church is doing amazing things. Why would God do that for us? I don't think he did it for us. I think he did it for you. I have the great privilege of being a pastor of the most precious congregation on the face of the earth. Folks were here till all hours of the night burning the candle. They don't even want their names to be known. Everyone in the bathrooms has toilet paper. They had folks, they, they still couldn't get the toilets to work, the urinals, electrical. So they're going out and getting ice and putting, they do everything. It's just crazy. And everywhere I turn around, there's somebody new. And they're, I'm like, do, do I know you? No, but I'm just happy to help. This is this congregation. And the journey that you've been through and all the changes and, and the pastor that would get into the political office and, and engage and bring officials like Diane McKay and Ed Jones and others to come forward and speak and, and, and be ridiculed and to be mocked and to have all kinds of things and to go through all of that. You are a precious congregation. God didn't bless me. He blessed you. I've already been blessed by you. And I think God just said, you know what? These folks are, are not of this world, but I'm going to give them a temporal home that I want to bless them with. And, and I really believe with all my heart that that's the case. As a matter of fact, I know the Wilkes, when they come out, they can't wait to meet all of you. I told them all the work that had been done. And, you know, less than two weeks, you guys put this whole thing together. Now, I share this with you as a long introduction for this simple reason. This church is very, very significant. This is going to be a hub of, great, of a great movement in this community. And God has blessed you for such a time as this. And I already know this. Pound for pound, this is the toughest congregation on the face of the earth. And you're willing to do anything, and, and you do. And God has established us. And what he's doing, I believe, is that the folks that understand this, understand this one key principle that's found in John 17, that you are not of this world. We're just passing through. And we have a high and noble calling. But here's what's interesting. At 54 years of age, I see the finish line. Now, it's still a ways away. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. 
But at 54 years of age, I have, I have assessed this, that, that I am looking behind me for the Davids. I'm looking behind me for the younger crowd to, to pass this baton to. But I want to set an example before I pass that baton. And I say that because in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and then we'll see in John, John 17 and 1 Samuel, I'm going to walk you through it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Folks that enjoyed it, we're going to pass this baton. You see, the, the core of this fellowship, if I were to have to do it over again in 2001 as a new pastor, if I, if I knew then what I know now, everyone says, oh, as a pastor, you've got to hire a worship leader, you've got to get a youth pastor, you've got to get children's ministry. That's your first key positions. I wouldn't do that. If I had to start a church again and come into that place, the first thing I'd do is work with the Sunshiners ministry, the older folks. Pound for pound, they are phenomenal. And they have a vision of what the world is supposed to be like. And they have no agenda other than to serve God. And they set the standard for the generations to come. When we cater to youth and we worship youth, yeah, we'll have a young church, but we'll have no vision. And they're going to be, you, you want to show folks who serve. You want to have a servant's heart. You want to be great in the kingdom, be a servant of all. Every time I turn around, somebody is cleaning something. I, I, was, I was watching uh, Mike Snow. This guy, Mike's older. I'm not going to say he's old, but he's older. And he's just everywhere. Mike, fix that. Okay, we'll go get that. And he doesn't have a, like a fast speed. It's just one speed. And he gets it done. But I want the younger folks to listen. We're ready to pass this baton. But you're going to have to show yourself. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. That's what's going to take us to the passage. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 3. That is the official longest introduction in the history of the church. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up at verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Let me repeat that. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, angels, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. They had sexual relations and she conceived and bore Cain. And said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Lord, please tie up all the loose ends and... Wrap this package so everyone goes home with a gift that they're thrilled about. We're just so thankful for the gift of this building. And by the power of your word, your word which is truth, I pray that you'd speak to our heart and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, please be seated. So in this passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And first of all, there was Adam and, and he was alone and it was not good. It was the only thing in the Garden of Eden that wasn't good, that man was alone. So he fashioned a woman and we can go through that, but I don't want to describe it. It's just suffice it to say there was man and there was woman. And they said, God said to them, you can eat of any tree in the, in the Garden of Eden, but of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it, for eating of it you will surely die. And basically what God said is, this is all yours and we have a relationship and you are in paradise and I am walking with you and you see me face to face, you see the mighty hand of God. The scripture says they walked in the cool of the garden, the word for cool of the garden is ruach, which means his spirit was upon them, it was an absolutely fascinating place to be and they were in heaven, they were, they were, they were born in heaven, here they are and life is good. And God said here's an exit sign and God said back there's an exit sign and here's an exit sign, Right? He said, the exit sign is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, don't eat of it, don't exit. Because when you do, you're going to die. Dying immediately and continuing to die. Don't do it. Well, the enemy comes in, sows these seeds of doubt, sends a lie into the mind. And Eve says, well, I'll get to know good and evil like God does. I'll be like God. He doesn't want me to be like him. And so she takes of it. And that wasn't cool. But what was worse is Adam comes, realizes exactly what's happened. He sees that it's affected his wife. She offers him the apple. He knows that God says don't do it. He's watched his wife do this. He knows that he's, he's going to die. He knows what he was told to do to protect her. He hasn't. And so he decides, my relationship with Eve is far important than my relationship with God. And I'm going to take this because I'd rather have her than live with you. And he exits. And so God looks at the two that have been given a free will to have a relationship with the living God. We are the creatures, he's the creator. We're the creatures, he's the creator. These two, they decide we don't want it. We want an exit sign. God says, fine. And he drives them out of the Garden of Eden. Drives them, like had to forcefully push them. You're out. And any of you have ever had wayward kids that, you know, they need to go to school and they need to do their stuff and they get past the age of 18 and maybe 20 and, and then and, and 25 and then they get into the 30s and they're not doing anything and you're like, you need to go and you're like, oh, I'm not leaving, I'm going to sue you if you try to make me move out of the house and we've gone through that. After a while, you're like, hey, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord, I'm not going to enable your lifestyle, you need to go. If this is how you want to live, you've got to live with your own consequences, with your own dime, not mine. And they move out, and they're like, wow, it's kind of expensive out here. Can I come back? No, not unless you change. Well, I don't want to change. Well, okay, then enjoy your life out there. And they were driven out. you got to go now. And then it's closed. Adam and Eve now step out of the gate of heaven, and they come into this earth. Now, it's God's earth. It's his, his dirt, his air, his water, right? We're all living on it. It's his. He fashioned it. But they enter into a, a world that has no humans, just the two of them. And I don't know how old Eve is. Maybe she's six months old because she was fashioned and as an adult out of the, it's, I can spend time, it'll, it's weird. But that's kind of how it is, right? And here they are. They're both an expanse. There's no cities. There's nothing. It's just them. And, you know, creation hasn't fallen. Sin hasn't permeated. I mean, you got butterflies that are hugantic. They're probably grapes that are this big. The air is fresh. They're seeing, you know, it's just phenomenal what they're witnessing. And then the scripture says that Eve conceives, and she gives birth. And God said in, in Genesis 3, it's a proto-evangelicum. He said, we're going to restore you. We're going to reconnect you on the other side of this wall. But what has to happen is, you're going to, you're, it's, Satan's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head. And there will be redemption. It's going to come through your lineage. 
And, and the wages of sin, you ate of that tree, that you will die. Dying, you will surely die. The only way back, the only way back to that world is by the redemptive, atoning blood. And he gave that proto-evangelicum. And so Eve says, Cain's it. Well, it takes about eight months when he learns the word, now, that is not going to be the savior of the world. Cain's not it. Abel comes along. He's not it. means vanity. So these two boys are not going to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And here's what's fascinating about Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve lived in that world. They are now in this world. They were eating a filet mignon. Now they're enjoying Alpo. Cain and Abel never had filet mignon. They, this is all they've ever known. And, and you want to talk about two boys that are more identical than identical twins. You can't say, oh, Cain takes from his mother's side of the family. She came out of Adam. That's, there's no other side of the family. It takes after the dad. Yeah, no. And you look at them, and they are identical. And you go, you know, we're products of our environment. No. No, 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 they had the same environment, same parents, same everything. They looked alike. They came from the same, I mean, this is it. And before them, God lays this out, and they're driven out. And mom and dad are wearing tunics. I repeated that twice. They're wearing the skins of animals. Those, those animals had to die, and they had to be covered. Why? Because the only way back to that other world is by the atoning sacrificial blood that will cover your sins and reconnect you with that world. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. And that blood is coming. And you are of that world. And so he gives him the tunics. He says, don't forget it. And you can imagine Cain is a tiller of the ground. Abel's working the flocks. And there is Adam, and he goes off into the wilderness, and the boys are watching Dad from a distance, and they see him walk with a little lamb, and they hear the bleeding of the lamb. <laughs> and he comes back, and there's blood, and he's got a new tunic. He says, Dad, what? He says, atonement. It's, it's an offering to the Lord. We're on death row. We, we used to live there, and now we're dying here. And I want to go back there. And the only way back, Jesus said, John 14, I am the way back. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father, back to that world, but by me. By me, yes, my body broken, my blood shed. And he says to his boys, this is why we have the tunics. There are only, there's only one way back to that other world. And it's by the atoning sacrificial blood of the, of the Lamb of God. I can't die for you and your mother can't die for you. We both ate the apple. God has to leave that world to come to this one to die for us. You understand, boys? And the boys are like, yeah. But dad, look at these, look at these grapes. Look at these. You have no idea. It was even more magnificent in that world. And every face we have seen from here on out is a fallen face. Every one of them has been marred by what we've done and we live with this. Boys, you want to be back at that world. So what do the youth pastors of our, of our community do? What do the pastors of our community do? There's a whole other government. There's a whole other world. We're not of this world. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are communicating from a world we've never seen. You walk in, you see people raising their hands to a God they don't see who's on that side of the wall. 
We're praying to a God that's on that side of the wall. It's another world. And people come in and go, what are you doing? My heart is over there. Why? Because that's truth. How do you know this? Because of his word. What does his word have to do with it? That's why we gather here. To rightly divide the word of truth. And they're trying to impart this to their sons and to pass this baton. And what does Cain do? Cain decides to say, you know what? I don't need tunics. I don't need this blood talk. I don't need to to ask for forgiveness. This whole world, I mean, look how magnificent it is. I can make a go of it. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to teach my kids. I don't need to talk about this world I can't see. And I'll bring an offering. I'll, I'll play the game. I mean, any idiot has to say in his heart, there is no God. Okay, I recognize he's there, but I don't have to play this whole atonement game. Here, here's some grain. I made it with my hands. But Abel watched his papa. Abel brings not just the lamb, he brings the fat of the lamb, which means he had to kill the lamb. And he comes and he says, blood is the only bridge back to that other world. And I think about that. God accepts, Cain, or accepts Abel's but doesn't accept Cain's. Cain gets so angry that he kills Abel. Here's the point, folks. There's only two religions in the world. We're created whether you agree or not. And from this garden with these two boys, there's a fork in the road. Cain does it his own way. Abel does it by sacrificial atonement and recognizing that the only bridge back is by a blood sacrifice. Trusting in a savior, trusting in his own effort. Man's way, God's way. And then it splits. Two ideologies enter the world as two religions are established. Every man says, I can do this on my own terms, the way I want. I'm going to be able to define truth. I'm going to be able to write truth. I'm going to be able to make my own way and do what's right in my own eyes and make my own gods and fashion with my own hands and play my own game. And these folks say, we're not of this world. We're going to operate by his rules, breathing his air, drinking his water, living on his dirt, and we're going to do it his way by his word. Well, that establishes two ideologies when it comes to everything on the earth. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Those rights came from the other side. They came from the other world that you've been created with life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You're endowed. These, these are inalienable. They're given to you by the one on the other side. And that government speaks of another world. That we're accountable and there are rules and there are laws to follow. And when you look at Isaiah and it says he's our king, he's our judge, he's our lawgiver, executive, legislative, judicial branch. When we realize that we're supposed to give these powers to those that are over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. And they're supposed to be godly and not covetous. That's where you have federal, state, county, local. All that is established. This is from the other world. In the history, 6,000 year recorded history of mankind, only once has this experiment in a bottom-up government ever been established. Why do I say this? Because we recognize a creator. That's not of this world. Have you ever seen him with your eyes? And yet we would instill him in our government? Are you crazy? Where did you get this? We're not from this world. Now the world comes up with amazing 
amazing man-centered approaches. If we can just remove all this, we can have our, our own world free from any rules and regulations. If we can just shut down this whole morality thing and whatever these, this God is of this other world, let's just take that out of the equation. You know what? The only way for a lie to exist is to destroy the truth. You see, a lie is never tolerant of the truth. And the only way for a lie to survive is that the truth has to be silenced. So what does Cain do? Ah, He kills his brother. And he did it his way. And all the governments of the world that have removed that other world and said there is no God. The Cains of the world have killed the Abels. It's the only way we can survive is to keep the lie silenced. Or excuse me, keep the truth silenced. And so billions have died under the regimes of Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin. You go, well, Christianity's been responsible for all kinds of atrocities. What? Salem witch trials, crusades, inquisition, combined less than 250,000 people. And, and the inquisition, that's when the church held the sword. They're not supposed to. And the Salem witch trials were ended by pastors. Do your homework. How many people have died in these godless governments that have removed the other world idea that we've been created? Billions. Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel and diverges. And so here we are in this church, and and this is what we believe, and this is how we apply what we believe, and so that you, you don't misunderstand this, so that you don't misunderstand this, listen to this. Ephesians 6 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I believe prayer can, can change natural law and affect governmental d- decisions. I believe that. Timothy Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. John 17, when he says about this other world, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I, he says to the Father, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. They're not of this world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's not your word is true. Your word is truth. Wow. You mean in that world on the other side of the wall... When he speaks, it is truth. Yes. He even said it of himself. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt with man. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man gets over that bridge but by me. My atoning sacrifice, my blood. That is the other world. Those are the governments. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the purpose of the fellowship. That we are not of this world, but we are affecting it for the other world. And so when you see this, and it's laid out in Scripture, Luke 
chapter 11, I'll read it to you. It says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Luke points out that Abel is a prophet. He's declaring this is the only way back to that world, the blood. It has to be atoning. You, you, can't, you can't play a game with God and say you're going to figure out a new religion. And you say, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that Cain's religion wasn't acceptable? Do you tell me the other religions of the world? I don't say that. His word does. 1 John 3, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel, no man, like Jesus said, no man takes my life. Abel just said, you know what, if this is how you're going to do it. And it's fascinating. I am tolerant of everything but you. I'm tolerant of anything that isn't contrary to what I believe. And so what do we do? If we don't like it, we silence it. The lie must silence the truth. And you live in the most fragile government the world has ever known. The ability to have the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of the press, and the freedom of the people to rightfully, you know, assemble for a right of redress of grievances against the government. Do you know how rare that is? Do you want to get... But, but we have abdicated it. 7,280,000 Christians don't even want to pull a lever. And this is the hub of change. And yes, we have something special and God's blessed us. But I'll tell you what, I'm looking at the young people. And I'll tell you why I'm looking at you. It's very unpopular to follow this. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be mocked. And not just by the, the world. You're going to, the church is going to have a heyday. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, and God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead, he still speaks. You see, young people, if you think the only way back, religion, Rilangari, to reconnect to God the Father, our Creator, if you believe that the only way back is through atonement, through blood, you're going to get ridiculed. Be careful. The world is diverging and they want to shut you down because you have the audacity to say that his word is truth. And you would stand upon that and apply it to every vestige of every mountain of cultural influence. And I want to I close with this last thought. And it's real simple. God has given us a very unique gift here at Calvary Godspeak. And I, I look out at this room and every one of you get it. But young people pay attention. 
the ones who are walking the precincts, the ones who are engaging in their communities, the ones who are, who are doing this, they know what it's like in that world. Their lives have been profoundly touched and they're on the backside. They're watching their bodies fade and they're realizing there's not a lot to hold on to here. I want to invest over there. And they're looking at you because you possess something that they don't have any longer. You have youth and vitality, but you have no vision. You're paralyzed by fear. I remember a 17-year-old boy. Maybe he was 15, but it's more than likely he was 17. And he comes to the Valley of Elah, and there's a 9-foot, 10-inch giant. You know the story, David and Goliath. David was 17, maybe even younger. And he comes into that Valley of Elah as the, the king of all of Israel, Saul, who is taller than anyone else in all of Israel. And all of the soldiers are paralyzed as they're on this side and the Philistines are on the other side. And the scripture says that the Philistines were in Judah, which belonged, or were in Judah, which belonged to God's people. You think it's a story on how to defeat a giant. It's not. It's how content God's people are, allow, are to allow the Philistines to occupy territory that rightfully belonged to God. Oh, we don't need the Bible in schools. Oh, we don't need to talk about Jesus. Oh, we're a secular. Oh, we don't have to do that. Oh, we got to avoid that. Oh, oh, oh. Every, yeah. Because you do that, you're going to, come on. Come on. You don't need to stand for morality. There's just too much to deal with. You don't do the city hall. You don't have to, we don't, I don't, I get it. That's the culture we're in. This is a paradigm shift. And this one kid walks out as he sees everyone paralyzed by the mocking of the ones who are in power. And they've, they've, in, they've, they've taken over all this territory. And they're the voice. They dominate. And they're calling him a champion, a giant, Goliath by name. And David comes out and he looks and he says, what? he's bringing supplies to his brother. He goes, what is going on here? He goes, what are you calling him that for? He's a reproach. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's a defiler of the armies of Israel. Will nobody do anything? G- give me that sling. He walks into the valley. He picks up a stone. He just sucks, just spins that thing and just throws it and he just sticks into his head. Boom. Cuts his head off, lifts it. Everyone has moved. And they take it. He, he, had, he, he had vision. He had passion. And he had youth. And at that moment, that was 1 Samuel 17. And I close with this. 1 Samuel 18, the first verses in the passage, it's interesting. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, David, he went in, held the head of Goliath, puts it on Saul's table, and he goes, look what God did. And when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You see, Jonathan was the greatest king Israel never had. He was Saul's son. He should be the king. He takes off his robe and all of his princely vestments and he puts him at the feet of David because he saw somebody who had vision, passion, and a willingness to contend and to push that world out of what belonged to God's world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jonathan looked at that and he said, that kid's a stud. Here's what's interesting. 20 years earlier, Jonathan was taken on the Philistines as a young man. He had his armor bearer by his side. He says, if by many or by few, I'm taking this thing. And he fought uphill as they were shooting downhill, and he conquered them. And when he was, 20 years ago, when he did that, 
Now David's 17 years old. He takes down Goliath, and Jonathan's soul is knitted to his. And you know how Jonathan, you know how old Jonathan is when he takes off his vestments and lays them at the feet of David? He's 47. Jonathan, or David's 17. And I, and I look at the older folks, and they're like, there's young people. I'm not going to allow that kind of music in here. And they're not going to take over and do whatever. Yeah, they are. And move aside. Just take off the vestment, hand it to him. I'm looking for a David. Good, look for a David. I I don't care about your smoke and mirrors and your couches and all the gimmicks you want to do in your church if you're young and you think that's hip. I want to see somebody who's willing to take on culture and push back the cultural mountains of influence for the sake of that world. That's what I'm looking for. And I'm happy to turn this over to you. And I'm excited to turn it over to you. But you better be fearless. I want you guys to light it up. And the older folks, in the meantime, we're going to be Jonathan's. We're going to be serving, and we're going to be faithful, and we're going to be getting it done. But we're looking over, and we're waiting for you. And this is going to be generations to come. And watch what God's going to do, because listen, all of us, we're not of this world. And we have access back there by one thing, and this is what we declare the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by that. That's how you're reconciled and reconnected. You can try to get there on your own. You're just going to end up as a cane and everyone else is going to irritate you that declares that his word is truth. And you won't want to hear it. And you'll do anything to shut it down. And we're going to love you into the kingdom. And even if you kill us like Cain killed Abel, our blood is still going to cry out and you will not be able to escape it and you will be going, what have I done? And it's all good because we're going to love you into this kingdom. And none of us are afraid because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. You know how we know that? Because his word is truth. And it inspires us and moves us. That's, that's how we ended up here. And so young people, I'm happy to be the Jonathan if you'll be the David. And I know every other person in this room feels the same way. And so this is the vision, this is the future, and this is the gift from the Lord. And I just want to say thank you for making it possible.